to Subtle Beast, everybody. I am your host, Foltz. With me, as always, my co-host, Mr. Steve Apostolopoulos. How are you, my man? Oh, Foltz, I'm feeling good tonight, brother. How are you? I feel fantastic. I feel electric. There's there's so many different things going on right now. Uh, it's just crazy. It's just it's crazy to think about. Have, I mean, this whole... I, I, I hate to just, without doing a little back and forth, but the thing that we've been talking about for the past few days is... Uh, this whole Area 51. This It's Rush uh, Raid, the Area 51 Raid. Yeah, it's it, it's so bizarre. I, I remember when I first saw like the first posting, there was maybe 7,000 people. That I think sent. it started on Facebook. Yeah, it did. It did. And there was like 7,000 people, and man, has it just grown to, what is it now, like a million? It's over a million now. They had 900,000 last week. Now it's over a million. Now... I tend to think that a lot of people are probably just hitting I'm going like just uh, I mean I hope that's the case I, I, yeah, <laughs> I, I, do re- I really do um, if any of our listeners are thinking about participating in that uh, we're going to urge you to not do that because uh, it's not the, the Navy has already come out I mean they wouldn't even have to say. I mean, people would have better luck, I would think, trying to get into the White House than trying to get into Area 51. Yep, Air Force MIGs or Air Force uh, aircraft pictures of like, what are they, like F-16 Tomcats or yeah. something. They're, they, they've already said that if you come on to the base that they'll shoot you. It's it's not worth it. I mean, look, number one, this would, I mean, this could have orchestrated into something huge if it would have like remained on the down low. I mean, but it started on Facebook, and the thing that kills me is they give away the date, they give away the exact time, 3 a.m. to 6 a.m., they put out their plans of how they were going to hit Area 51 in like three different waves. multiple groups. Yeah, waves. Which, if you're unfamiliar with the terrain that surrounds Area 51, if you're not in group one that's like going by the fence, you're going to be running through like 25 miles of mountain ranges through the Mojave Desert. <laughs> I, I'm not signing up for that part. I don't even want to be anywhere around there when that happens. Well, a funny story was I texted Steve when this story first broke. Like I said, when I saw it was like around 7,000. And uh, I was like, we should go. And he just wrote back. So I'm like, absolutely not. <laughs> not going. And I, I, and I just wrote back, not to participate, but to, to cover this event. But you know what? It's grown so large now that if, if some people, you know, that are just, I don't know, intoxicated maybe, decide that they're just going to cross that little red line, there's going to be all, all heck's going to break loose. And I don't want to get hit by a straight bullet or anything just for covering the event. Yeah, I've seen live stream. The people are promoting that they're going to do live streams from the area. That's as close as I want to get to it. Yeah, I mean, I would imagine that the uh, the people of uh, that town are going to be ecstatic. Right, that, that bunch of revenue. But you know what happens? Things get overrun. I mean, nobody's ready for a million people. I mean, I don't really see a million people descending on that. You got a little hotel with 13 rooms. September 20th, out in the desert. I mean, in Vegas. It's going to be hot. Yeah. And, you, and you're most likely going to either, at the very least, get arrested or get shot. But there, even if you got there, I mean, there's not going to be anything that you could see. Let me tell you this. If, if there's a million people that clicked on that on that uh, Facebook page, 
even if a low percentage showed up, say below 10%, even if- 100,000. 10% is 100,000. Yeah. 1% is 10,000. Yeah. That's a lot of people. A lot of people. That's a lot of people- but like I said, had they had they not announced it publicly, and maybe this would have been like an underground, maybe dark net kind of thing. A movement. Yeah, I mean, I can't imagine they would have obtained any uh, type of hard evidence, but there, there there would probably be people with like selfie sticks, like running across like the air, like, I made it, yeah. you know, and just be like, oh my gosh. Doesn't it seem like, um, oh, what about the Congress being briefed a month ago? Oh yeah, they were they were briefed on uh, members of Congress. I think it was the members of Congress that wanted to join the briefing for oh uh, yeah for UFO for UFO yep. UFO studies and and it came out that they had already spent like what twenty three million dollars investigating the topic the UFOs right because there's just been this rash of like former pilots and it seems like UFOs and alien and ET is just the hot topic right now it really seems to be i mean which is great that we're discussing it i always think that we need to to remember a couple things like when it's getting hot like this and you know CIA's releasing videos and you know, people are talking about an Area Fifty One's big right now with this whole story. You just got to watch and see, like, what is it that they're putting out? Because if you remember, we've talked about in podcast past with Steve Greer's brief people about uh, that there could be a false flag attack. That uh, not necessarily alien craft, but reconstruction vehicles that they'll use to to uh, hoax an, an alien invasion to rowdy the american people or the people of the world around putting weapons in space you always got to try and remember what's propaganda and what's not and typically if it's being reported from our government it's got to be used in their benefit it just seems like even as short as 10 years ago <laughs> people that wanted to discuss uh, ETs or or you know science fiction in general were kind of shunned and it's just become so accepted now um, but it wasn't always that way when we were growing up you know in the 80s I would say we grew up in the 80s right absolutely it wasn't the same way as it is now I mean ET the movie came out you know, yeah but it was in close encounters came out but it wasn't accepted in society the way that it is now. No, and I think that that has a lot to do with the times and our technology that the children of, of the late 70s, early 80s growing up, I mean, we had Star Wars. So when when this generation grows up, they're going to try and you know, m- make this kind of happen, like Elon Musk. Right. You know, everything that we have as far as technology, whether we know about it or we not, I've heard many different <coughs> scientists and physicists say, the idea came from science fiction because we're like, well, if someone can dream it, we can probably do it. So sometimes art mimics society and sometimes society mimics art. Right. Exactly. So it is an exciting time. Um, who knows? Who knows what what will happen? But uh, well, we'll keep reporting on it. We'll keep you up to date with uh, everything that's going on with Area 51 if you're not following it uh, you know, online or social media. But I mean... Uh, 
even our local news here in Pennsylvania was covering it today, which I'm sure all across the country is doing the same. It's a big deal, and uh, I think everyone's just hoping that uh, you know this doesn't go down. As much as I'd love to get inside Area 51, this is not the way. No, we want them to turn it over to us. Right. I, I, I read somewhere somebody wrote, and they were probably joking, but uh, I wouldn't be surprised that on September 19th, they're going to open up Area 51 for tours. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I want. I want to I want to be given a tour. I don't want to have to ram, yeah, uh, ramshackle the place. Yeah, I'll just get, okay, this is probably where they did this and that, and, you know, just get the feel for it. I mean be eerie and be cool at the same time flying on janet airline the only airline that flies in area 51 and be cool Fultz loves it i do i do but you know what we're not gonna let's try and uh we're just gonna touch on that briefly we had to mention it just because it's just it's all the news right now but uh we're gonna dive into our, our main topic of tonight which uh obviously is uh philip k dick steve why don't you fill for people that aren't familiar with philip k dick uh yeah man it was, what are some of the things what is he best known for i think some of the things that he that he's best known for i give you like top three things because i mean he's written over 34 novels but uh he wrote the story for total recall one of my favorites i mean growing up in the 80s we we're just talking about all the movies total recall arnold schwarzenegger played uh the protagonist in that one and it was just a fantastic sci-fi thriller uh, from our youth I love that one And also He wrote Minority Report Great movie Minority Report With Tom Cruise That one was uh, Really Twisted With the precogs Right Just Unreal And uh, I think Maybe What he Has Had produced Into a series And, and not him But What has been produced Into a series Most recently Is Man in the High Castle which is amazing. It's it's phenomenal. You turned me on to Man in the High Castle. And basically, the way to explain that is, World War II, uh, the Allied forces lost. Instead of the U.S. and um, our allies winning World War II, we lost. And then... Basically, a parallel universe. A, a bizarro opposite universe. Right. Where... The Nazi, the Nazis, and the Japanese take the continental U.S. and divide it in half, and there's a, a little zone in the middle. But it is an unreal story. So this guy, Philip K. Dick, he's just his his stories are intertwined in our lives. It's stuff we grew up with. Um, if you haven't seen Man in the High Castle yet, check it out because it's it is a great story. Yeah, and one of the fascinating things. <clears throat> also about philip k dick and, and a lot of the stories that he has written is that he believes in a lot of them that that like slaves this minority report that that technology is there or total recall that that has gone that is going on somewhere maybe not mars but so some people will always ask is is philip k dick a madman or a mystic um so let's just jump into it um in the divine madness of philip k dick kyle arnold delves into a complicated psyche of one of the 20th century's most important writers at the center of the subject is a profound vision dick experienced in 1974 which he referred to as 2374 Arnold, a psychologist at Coney Island Hospital and clinical assistant professor for psychiatry at the Sunny Downstate Medical Center, explains the experience and its significance. In February of 1974, Philip K. Dick was home recovering from dental surgery. 
He said he was suddenly touched by the divine. The doorbell rang, and when Dick opened the door, he was stunned to see what he described as a girl with black, black hair and large eyes, very lovely and intense, wearing a gold necklace with a Christian fish symbol. She was there to deliver a new batch of medications from the pharmacy. After the door shut, Dick was blinded by a flash of pink light, and a series of visions ensued. First came images of abstract paintings, followed by psychological ideas and then sophisticated engineering blueprints. Dick believed the pink light was a spiritual force which had unlocked his consciousness, granting him access to esoteric knowledge. In the following months, the visions continued. Scenes of ancient Rome appeared, superimposed over Dick's suburban neighborhood. A local playground seemed a Roman prison. Where there was a chain-link fence, Dick saw iron bars. And where there was children playing, he saw weeping Christian martyrs about to be fed to lions. Dick saw pedestrians dressed in Roman military uniforms, (coughs) stone walls and iron bars. I had gone back in time, Dick wrote to a friend, but in a sense, Rome had come forward. But insidious and sly degrees under new names hidden by the flack talk and the phony obscurations at last into our world again. Dick supposed time had stopped in 70 AD, the year the Temple of Jerusalem had been destroyed by Romans. Everything that happened afterwards was an illusion, and the world was still under Romans' dominion. Dick believed the Roman Empire was embodied in a tyrannical Nixon administration and responsible for the assassinations of Kennedy and Martin Luther King Jr. His own role was that an undercover Christian revolutionary fighting to overthrow the empire. That was why the delivery girl had flashed him the fish sign. Some of this information, he claimed, was provided by three-eyed extraterrestrial time travelers who entered his bedroom through a portal of pink light. Dick fictionalized the experiences in his sci-fi novel, Valis. And also, that kind of reminds you of, um, not Minority Report, uh, Total Recall. Sure. Yeah, where it's kind of like a dream in a dream. Yeah, and, and, and he's not sure, but I mean, this sounds bizarre. Yeah, this guy, he's got it going on, man. His imagination is unreal. I'm loving it. <clears throat> There's a considerable difference of opinion among Philip K. Dick enthusiasts about what it all meant. Was it a psychotic break or a religious experience? And how would one tell the difference? Dick knew that what he called it was divine madness would come across as mental illness. By his own admission, he grappled with paranoia and self-depreciatingly called himself a flipped-out freak. The paranoia was probably the result of Speed. A prolific author who published 34 novels during his lifetime, Dick used amphetamines to maintain his productivity. Friends recall... His refrigerator was stuffed with bottles of amphetamine pills jammed next to pre-made milkshakes. Dick gulped the pills down by the handful and washed them down with the milkshakes. He called them his happiness pills and his nightmare pills. When his addiction went into high gear, so did his paranoia. While walking in the country, Dick had a vision of a vast vestige of perfect evil spanning the sky. It had empty slots for eyes. It was metal and cruel, and worst of all, it was God. And yet, the divine madness of 1974 was different. Although it included paranoid elements, the most obvious being the nefarious Roman Empire lurking beneath appearances, there was more to it than that. Dick felt guided by spirits. Following their advice, 
He took better care of his health and made clever business decisions. In one instance, a hallucinated voice urged him to seek medical care for his infant son for what turned out to be a hernia. Dick's judgment improved. He felt more alive. In a sense, his divine madness drove him saner. It didn't last. Eventually, the divine spirit left. Spiritually abandoned and in despair, Dick attempted suicide. He overdosed on his blood pressure medication and slit his wrists. Then he climbed into his car, uh, turned on the engine with the garage door closed. He hoped that if the overdose and the slit wrists didn't do him in, the carbon monoxide would, but the suicide failed. Dick vomited up the medication, his wrists coagulated, and the engine stalled. This is a troubled man. For the rest of his life, Dick was obsessed with his close encounter with the pink light. Trying to make sense of it all, he wrote an 8,000-page commentary he called The Exgenesis. In it, he proposed that the source of the pink light may have been God, or the KGB, or a satellite, or aliens, or a first-century Christian named Thomas, with whom he was in telepathic communication. Any of those. Or the CIA, or a version of himself from a different dimension, or possibly his deceased twin sister contacting him from the spirit world. Each new theory seemed to telescope outward into further possible theories um, ad infinitum. So, while Dick never settled on a definitive explanation of what happened to him, he did explain why his divine madness was so captivating. Before the visions, he felt alienated for most of his life, an observer in a strange world. But in 1974, it seemed as if the world had changed to accommodate me so that I was, as a result of this radical change, no longer a stranger here. It became my world and my anxiety which tormented me every day and night, departed. All of a sudden, I fitted in. For a short time, he had a place in the universe. Wow. So you have to think, is he crazy? Is he delusional from the amphetamines? Did he go crazy? Because he got the illness right. Right. He was visited by the spirit, and he took his son, and yeah, he did have a hernia. So was that just craziness or was that precognition was that some type of visitation tough to say but it definitely inspired his writing oh it definitely did and it's definitely fascinating and if it would turn out to be true it would be well it would be crazy i mean well they always say the truth is stranger than fiction but what do you have it so this guy's writing is uh like I said, unreal and unparalleled. I think as far as a sci-fi author goes, he's he's a champion. I totally agree. Now, in this next portion uh, about Dick, he starts to uh, he he talks about how to build a universe that doesn't fall apart two days later. Now, first of all, before I begin to bore you with the usual sort of things science fiction writers say in speeches. Let me bring you the official greetings from Disneyland. Philip K. Dick, 1978. I consider myself a spokesman for Disneyland because I live just a few miles from it. And as if that were not enough, I once had the honor of being interviewed there by Paris TV. For several weeks after the interview, I was really ill and confined to bed. I think it was the whirling teacups that did it. 
Elizabeth Antibi, who was the producer of the film, wanted to have me whirling around in one of these giant teacups while discussing the rise of fascism with Norman Spinrad, an old friend of mine who writes excellent science fiction. We also discussed Watergate. But we did that on the deck of the Captain Hook's pirate ship. Little children wearing Mickey Mouse hats. Those black hats with the ears kept running up and bumping against us with the cameras. Word away, and Elizabeth asked us unexpected questions. Norman and I, being preoccupied with tossing little children about, said some extraordinary stupid things that day. Today, however, I will have to accept full blame for... <clears throat> For what I tell you, since none of you are wearing Mickey Mouse hats and trying to climb up on me <clears throat> under the impression that I am part of rigging of a pirate ship, <clears throat> science fiction writers, I'm sorry to say, really do not know anything. We can talk about science because of our knowledge of it is limited and unofficial, and usually our fiction is dreadful. A few years ago, no college or university would have ever considered inviting any of us to speak. We were mercifully confined to the lurid pulp magazines impressing no one. In those days, friends would say, but are you writing anything serious? Meaning, are you writing anything other than science fiction? We longed to be accepted. We yearned to be noticed. Then suddenly, the academic world noticed us. We were invited to give speeches and appear on panels, and immediately we were made idiots of ourselves. The problem is simply this. What does a science fiction writer know about? On what topic is he in authority? It reminds me of a headline that appeared in a California newspaper just before I flew here. Scientists say that mice cannot be made to look like human beings. It was a federally funded research program, I suppose. Just think, someone in this world is an authority on the topic of whether mice can or cannot put on two-toned shoes, derby hats, and pinstripe shirts, and a drake in pants, and a pass as a human. Well, I'll tell you... <clears throat> What interests me, what I consider important, I can't claim to be an authority on anything, but I can honestly say that the certain matters absolutely fascinate me, and that I write about them all the time. The two basic topics which fascinate me are, what is reality, and what constitutes the authentic human being? Over the 27 years in which I had published novels and stories, I had investigated these two interrelated topics over and over again. I consider them important topics. What are we? What is it which surrounds us that we call the not me or the empirical or phenomenal world? In 1951, when I sold my first story, I had no idea that such fundamental issues could be pursued in science fiction. I began to pursue them unconsciously. My first story had to do with a dog who imagined that the garbage men who came every Friday morning were stealing valuable food, which the family had carefully stored away in a safe metal container. Every day, members of the family carried out paper sacks of nice, ripe foods, stuffed them into metal containers, and shut the lid tightly. And when the container was full, these dreadful-looking creatures came and stole everything but the can. Finally, in the story, the dog begins to imagine that someday the garbage men will eat the people in the house, as well as stealing their food. Of course, the dog is wrong about this. We all know that the garbage men do not eat people, but the dog's version was, in a sense, logical, given the facts at his disposal. The story about a real dog, and I used to watch him and try to get inside his head and imagine how he saw the world. Certainly, I decided that dogs see the world quite differently than I do or any other humans. And then I began to think, maybe each human being lives in a unique world, a private world. A world different from those inhabited and experienced by all other humans. And that led me to wonder, if reality differs from person to person, can we speak of reality singular 
Or shouldn't we really be talking about plural realities? And if there are plural realities, are there some more true, more real than others? What about the world of a schizophrenic? Maybe it's as real as our world. Maybe we cannot say that we are in touch with reality, and he is not. But should instead say, his reality is so different from ours that he can't explain his to us, and we can't explain ours to him. The problem then is that the subjective worlds are experienced too differently. There occurs a breakdown of communication, and there is a real illness. I once wrote a story about a man who was injured and taken to a hospital. When they began surgery on him, they discovered that he was an android, not a human. But he did not know that. They had to break the news to him. Almost at once, Mr. Garson Poole discovered that his reality consisted of punched tape passing from reel to reel in his chest. Fascinated, he began to fill in some of the punched holes and added new ones. Immediately, his world changed. A flock of ducks flew from the room when he punched one new hole in the tape. Finally, he cut the tape entirely, whereupon the world disappeared. However, it also disappeared for the other characters in the story, which makes no sense. If you think about it, unless the other characters were figments of his punch tape fantasy, which I guess it, that they were, it was always my hope in writing novels and stories which asked the question, what is reality, to someday get an answer. This was the hope for most of my readers, too. Years passed. I wrote over 30 novels and over 100 stories, and I still could not figure out what was real. One day, a college girl, a student in Canada, asked me to define reality for her. For a paper she was writing for her philosophy class, she wanted a one-sentence answer. I thought about it and finally said, Reality is that which, when you stop believing in it, doesn't go away. That's all I could come up with. That was back in 1972. Since then, I haven't been able to define reality any more lucidly. But the problem is a real one, not a mere intellectual game. Because today, we live in a society in which spurious realities are manufactured by the media, by governments, by big corporations, by religious groups, political groups, and the electronic hardware exists by which to deliver these pseudo-worlds right into the heads of the reader, the viewer, the listener. Sometimes when I watch my 11-year-old daughter watch TV, I wonder what she's being taught. The problem of miscuing, considering that a TV program produced for adults is viewed by a small child, half of what is said and done on TV drama is probably misunderstood by that child. Maybe it's all misunderstood. And the thing is, just how authentic is the information anyhow? Even if the child correctly understood it, what is the relationship between the average TV situation comedy to reality? What about that cop show? Cars are continually swerving out of control, crashing and catching fire. The police are always good and they always win in the end. Do not ignore that point. The police always win in the end. The lesson is that you should not fight authority. And even if you do, you will lose. The message here is be passive and cooperate. If Officer Beretta asks you for your information, give it to him. Because Officer Beretta is a good man and to be trusted. He loves you and you should love him. So I ask in my writing, what is real? Because unceasingly, we are bombarded with pseudo-realities manufactured by very sophisticated people using very sophisticated electronic mechanisms. I do not distrust their motives. I distrust their power. They have a lot of it, and it is astonishing power, that of creating whole universes, universes of the mind. 
I ought to know I do the same thing. It is my job to create universes as the basis of one of my novels. And I have to build them in such a way that they do not fall apart two days later. Or at least that is what my editors hope. However, I will reveal a secret to you. I like to build universes which do fall apart. I like to see them come unglued. And I like to see how the characters in the novels cope with this problem. I secretly love chaos. There should be more of it. Do not believe, and I am dead serious when I say this, do not assume that order and stability are always good in a society or in a universe. The old, the ossified, must always give way to new life and the birth of new things. Before the new things can become born, the old must perish. This is a dangerous realization because it tells us that we must eventually part with much of what is familiar to us, and that hurts. But that is the part of the script of life. Unless we can psychologically accommodate change, we ourselves begin to die inwardly. What I'm saying is that the objects, customs, habits, and ways of life must perish so that we can authenticate human beings and call it life. And it is the authentic human being who matters most, the viable, elastic organism which can bounce back and absorb and deal with the new. That's crazy. Like, like a lot of the things that he was saying in there, like I relate to, especially with having <clears throat> children and small children throughout the years, you know, just having like uh, innocent conversations. Like if uh, we're on a walk and they look and they're like, oh, look, daddy, look at the, look at the green tree. And I'd always say to him, yeah, I recognize that as green as well. But the way that you see green and the way that I see green could be totally different. I might see it as red, but I still recognize it as being green, and you may see it as something else, but you just recognize it as being that. As crazy as that all is. That is wild, man. But, I mean, that's kind of what he's saying. Like, what is reality? We don't know. You can't trust anybody. And when he's saying about the authority figures, if the real people in power, if they want to get you for whatever reason, they're going to do it. It's true. Our perception of reality changes from person to person because what what I deem as reality and what someone from a different socioeconomical standpoint deems as reality could be totally different. Absolutely. What it, I I always think like how shocking it would be if if like covertly you went into I don't know some some tribe that has never been bothered by humanity or any outside force ever and you went in there and someone like blew like a dart at him that knocked him out and when he woke up he was like in Times square in new york city and all he'd ever seen is like the jungle and his surrounding huts and stuff he would be <laughs> he would go crazy yeah it, it would it could blow his mind yeah he would never he'd probably think that he was on like some distant planet or or something he would probably long to get back to where he came from <laughs> yeah he just wants to be barefoot <laughs> in the jungle his, the simplicity exactly 
Well, let's get back to this guy. Now, as Dick continues on, I would say this because I live near Disneyland, and they're always adding new rides and destroying old ones. Disneyland is evolving organism. For years, they had the Lincoln simulation, like Lincoln himself was only a temporary form which matter and energy take and then lose. The same is true of each of us, like it or not. The pre-Socratic Greek philosopher Paramedes taught the only things that are real are things which never change. And the pre-Socratic Greek philosopher Heraclides taught that everything changes. So if you superimpose their two views, you get this result. Nothing is real. There is a fascinating next step to this line of thinking. Paramedes could never have existed because he grew old and died and disappeared. So according to his own philosophy, he did not exist. And Heraclides may have been right. Let's not forget that. So if Heraclides was right, then Paramedes did exist. And therefore, according to Heraclides' philosophy, perhaps Paramedes was right. Since Paramedes fulfilled the conditions, the criteria by which Heraclides judged things real. Everybody got that? (laughs) So I offer this merely to show that as soon as you begin to ask what is ultimately real, you right away begin to talk nonsense. Zeno proved that motion was impossible. Actually, he only imagined that he had proved this. What he had lacked was the the technicality is called the theory of limits. David Hume, the greatest skeptic of them all, once remarked that after gathering of skeptics met to proclaim the veracity of skepticism as philosophy, all of the members of the gathering nonetheless left by the door rather than the window. I see Hume's point. It was just talk. The solemn philosophers weren't taking what they said seriously. But I consider that the matter of defining what is real. That is a serious topic, even a vital topic. And in there somewhere is the other topic, the definition of the authentic human. Because of the bombardment of pseudo-realities begins to produce inauthentic humans very quickly, spurious humans, as fake as the data pressing at them from all sides. My two topics are really one topic. They unite, they unite at this point. Fake realities will create fake humans, or fake humans will generate fake realities and then sell them to other humans, turning them eventually into forgeries of themselves. So we wind up with fake humans inventing fake realities and then peddling them to other fake humans it is just a very large version of disneyland you can have the pirate ride or the lincoln simulation or mr toad's wild ride you can have all of them but none is true in my writing i got so interested in fakes that i finally came up with the concept of fake fakes for example in disneyland there are fake birds worked by electronic motors which emit calls and shrieks as you pass by them Suppose some night all of us snuck into the park with real birds and substituted them for artificial ones. Imagine the horror the Disneyland officials would feat when they discovered the cruel hoax. Real birds. And perhaps someday even real hippos and lions. The park being cunningly transmuted from the unreal to real by sinister forces. For instance, suppose that the Matterhorn turned into a genuine snow-covered mountain. What if the entire place, by miracle of God's power and wisdom, was was changed in a moment, in the blink of an eye, into something incorruptible? They would have to close down. In Plato's Timaeus, God does not create the universe and does as does the Christian God. He simply finds it one day. It is in the state of total chaos. God sets to work to transform the chaos into order. That idea appeals to me. I have apted to fit it into my own intellectual needs. 
What in our universe started out as not quite real, a sort of illusion, as the Hindu religion teaches, and God, out of love and kindness for us, is slowly transmuting it, slowly and secretly, into something real? We would not be aware of this transformation, since we are not aware that our world was an illusion in the first place. This technically is a Gnostic idea. Gnosticism is a religion which embraced Jews, Christians, and pagans for several centuries. I have been accused of holding Gnostic ideas. I guess I do. At one time, I would have been burned, but some of these ideas intrigue me. One time, I was researching Gnosticism in the Britannica, and I came across a mention of Gnostic Codex called The Unreal God and the Aspects of His Non-Existent Universe, an idea which reduced me to helpless laughter. What kind of person would write about something that he knows doesn't exist, and how can something that doesn't exist have aspects? But then I realized I had been writing about these matters for over 25 years. I guess there is a lot of latitude in what you can say when writing about a topic that does not exist. A friend of mine once published a book called Snakes of Hawaii. A number of libraries wrote him, ordering copies. Well, there are no snakes in Hawaii. All the pages of his book were blank. Of course, in science fiction, no pretense is made that the world described is real. This is why we call it fiction. The reader is warned in advance not to believe what he is about to read. Equally true, the visitors the visitors to Disneyland understand that Mr. Toad does not really exist and that the pirates are animated by motors or servo-assist mechanics, relays, and electronic circuits, so no deception is taking place. And yet, the strange thing is, in some way, some real way, much of what appears under the title science fiction is true. It may not be literally true, I suppose. We have not even been invaded by creatures from another star system, as depicted in Close Encounters of the Third Kind. The producers of that film never intended for us to believe it, or did they? And more important, if they did intend to state this, is it actually true? That that is the issue. Not does the author or producer believe it, but is it true? Because the quiet, the quiet by accident in pursuit of a good yarn, a science fiction author or producer or scriptwriter might stumble onto the truth and only later on realize it. Which that reminds me of uh, when they're talking about Close Encounters of the Third Kind. It reminds me of when Spielberg was first putting that movie together, and uh, NASA and you know some of the secret space program. They got a hold of his script and uh, I guess maybe even uh, previewed the movie before it was out. And they told Spielberg to change a bunch of things. And well, they sent him a letter, and uh, he showed the letter, and it basically was stating, "We want you to change a lot of things because a lot of the things." that you're depicting in this story were real and actually took place. And they didn't want to, anybody in the world to actually get an inside glimpse of what really, what really took place. So very interesting. Now the basic tool for the manipulation of reality is the manipulation of words. If you can control the meaning of words, you can control the people who must use the words. George Orwell made this clear in his novel, 1984, but another way to control the minds of people is to control their perception. If you can get them to see the world as you do, they will think as you do. Comprehension follows perception. How do you get them to see the reality you see? After all, it is only one reality out of many. Images are a basic constituent. Pictures. This is why the power of the TV to influence young minds is so tragically vast. Words and pictures are synchronized. The possibility of total control of the viewer exists, especially the young viewer. TV viewing is a kind of sleep learning. 
an EEG of a person watching TV shows that after an hour, the brain decides that nothing is happening and it goes into this hypnotical twilight state emitting alpha waves. This is because there is such little eye motion. In addition, much of the information is graphic and therefore passes in into the right hemisphere of the brain rather than being processed by the left where the conscious personality is located. Recent experiments indicate that much of what we see on TV screen is received on a subliminal basis. We only imagine that we consciously see what, what is there. The bulk of the messages elude our attention. Literally after a few hours of watching TV, we do not know what we have seen. Our memories are spurious, like our memories of dreams. The blanks are filled with retrospect and falsified. We have participated unknowingly in the creation of spurious reality, and then we have obligingly fed it to ourselves. We have colluded in our own doom. How about that? I, I mean, it's a take on TV for sure. Yeah, I mean, I can believe certain aspects of that because, I mean, I've, I've watched movies and TV shows where, you know, you kind of zone out for a while, and then later on something happens, and you're like, well, why'd that happen? Like, well... The conversation they just had. Right. It's it's nice to have somebody watching it with you where you can look over at them and be and ask them those questions. Absolutely. You wanna you wanna go there? And and I say this is a profession I say this as a professional fictional writer. The producers, script writers, and directors who create these video audio worlds do not know how much of their content is true. In other words, they are victims of their own product. How much of their content is true? Mm. In other words, they're victims of their own product along with us. Speaking for myself, I do not know how much of my writing is true or which parts, if any, are true. This is a potentially lethal situation. We have fiction mimicking truth and truth mimicking fiction. We have a dangerous overlap, a dangerous blur, and in all probability, it is not deliberate. In fact, that is the part of the problem. You cannot legislate an author into correctly labeling his product. Like a can of pudding whose ingredients are listed on the label, you cannot compel him to declare what part is true and what part isn't. He himself does not know. It is an eerie experience to write something in a novel believing that it's pure fiction and to later learn, perhaps years later, that it is true. I would like to give you an example. It's something that I do not understand. Perhaps you can come up with a theory. I can't. In 1970, I wrote a novel called Flow My Tears, the policeman said. One of the characters is a 19-year-old girl named Kathy. Her husband's name is Jack. Kathy appears to work for the criminal underground, but later, as we read deeper into the novel, we discover that she is actually working for the police. She has a relationship going on with the police inspector. The character is pure fiction, or at least I thought it was. Anyhow, on Christmas Day of 1970, I met a girl named Kathy. This was after I'd finished the novel, you understand. She was 19 years old, and her boyfriend was named Jack. I soon learned that Kathy was a drug dealer. I spent months trying to get her to give up dealing drugs. I kept warning her again and again that she would get caught. Then one evening, as we were entering a restaurant together... Kathy stopped short and said, I can't go in there. Seated in the restaurant was a police inspector whom I knew. I have to tell you the truth, Kathy said. I have a relationship with him. Certainly, these odd coincidences. Perhaps I have precognition. But the mystery becomes even more perplexing. 
The next stage totally baffles me. It has for four years. In 1974, the novel was published by Doubleday. One afternoon, I was, I was talking to my priest. I'm an Episcopalian. And I happened to mention to him the important scene near the end of the novel in which the character Felix Buckman meets a black stranger at an all-night gas station. And they began to talk. As I described the scene in more and more detail, my priest became progressively more agitated. At least he said, that is a scene from the book of Acts, from the Bible. In Acts, the person who meets the black man on the road is named Philip, your name. Father Rash was so upset by this resemblance that he could not even locate the scene in the Bible. Read Acts, he instructed me, and you'll agree. It's the same down to the specific details. I went home and I read the scene in Acts. Yes, Father Rash was right. The scene in my novel was an obvious retelling of the scene in Acts. I had never read Acts, I must admit. But again, the puzzle became deeper. In Acts, the high Roman official who arrests and interrogates St. Paul is named Felix, the same name as my character. And my character, Felix Buckman, is a high-ranking police general. In fact, in my novel, he holds the same office as Felix in the book of Acts, the final authority. There is a conversation in my novel which very closely resembles a conversation between Felix and Paul. Well, I decided to try for any further resemblances. The main character in my novel is named Jason. I got an index to the Bible and I looked to see if anyone was named Jason in the Bible. I couldn't remember any. Well, a man named Jason does appear once and only once in the Bible. It is in the book of Acts. And as if to plague me further with coincidences, in my novel, Jason is fleeing from authorities and takes refuge in a person's house. And in Acts, the man named Jason shelters a fugitive from the law in his house, an exact inversion of the situation in my novel, as if the mysterious spirit responsible for all this was having a sort of laugh about the whole thing. Felix, Jason, and the meeting on the road with the black man who is a complete stranger. In Acts, the disciple Philip baptizes the black man, who then goes to away rejoicing. In my novel, Felix Buckman reaches out to the black stranger for emotional support, because Felix Buckman's sister has just died, and he's falling apart psychologically. The black man stirs up Buckman's spirits, and although Buckman does not go away rejoicing, at least his tears have stopped falling. He had been flying home weeping over the death of his sister and had to reach out to someone, anyone, even a total stranger. It was an encounter between two strangers on the road which changes the life of one of them, both in my novel and in Acts. And one final quirk about this mysterious spirit at work. The name Felix is the Latin word for happy, which I did not know when I wrote the novel. A careful study of my novel shows that for reasons which I cannot even begin to explain, I managed to retell several of the basic incidents from a particular book in the Bible and even had the right names. What could explain this? That was four years ago, and I discovered all of this. For four years, I've tried to come up with a theory, and I have not. I doubt I ever will. But the mystery had not ended there. 
As I had imagined, two months ago, I was walking up to a mailbox late at night to the mail. And I was also to enjoy the sight of St. Joseph's Church, which sits to the opposite of my apartment. I noticed a man loitering suspiciously by the park and by a parked car. It looked as if he was attempting to steal the car or maybe something from it. As I returned from the mailbox, the man hid behind the tree. On impulse, I walked up to him and asked, Is there anything the matter? I'm out of gas, the man said, and I have no money. Incredibly, because I have never done this before, I got out my wallet, took all the money out, and handed it to him. He then shook hands with me and asked where I lived so that he could later pay me back. I returned to my apartment, and then I had realized that the money would do him no good, since there was no gas station within walking distance. So I returned in my car. The man had a metal gas can in the trunk of his car, and together we drove in my car to an all-night gas station. Soon we were standing there, two strangers, as the pump jockey filled the metal gas can. Suddenly I realized that this was the scene in my novel, the novel I written eight years ago. The all-night gas station was exactly as I had envisioned it in my inner eye when I wrote the scene. The glaring white light, the pump jockey, and now I saw something that I had not seen before. The stranger who I was helping was black. We drove back to his stalled car with the gas, shook hands, and then I returned to my apartment building. I never saw him again. He could not pay me back because I had not told him where I lived or where my apartment was or what my name was. I was terribly shaken up by this experience. I had literally lived out a scene completely as it had appeared in my novel, which is to say I had lived out a sort of replica of the scene in Acts where Philip encounters the black man on the road. What could explain all this? The answer I've come up with is maybe not correct, but is the only answer I have. It has to do with time. My theory is this. In some sort some certain important scene, time is not real, or perhaps it is real. But not as an experience it to be or imagine it to be. I had the acute overwhelming certitude. I still have that, despite all the change we see. A specific permanent landscape underlies the world, change. And that is invisible underlying landscape is that of the Bible. It specifically is the period immediately following the death and resurrection of Christ. It is, in other words, the time period of the book of Acts. Paramedians would be proud of me. I have gazed at the constantly changing world and declared that underneath it lies the eternal, the unchanging, the absolutely real. But how has this come about? If the real time circa is A.D., then why do we see A.D. 1978? And if we are really living in Roman Empire, somewhere in Syria, why do we say the United States? During the Middle Ages, a curious theory arose, which I will now present to you for what it is worth. It is the theory that the evil one, Satan, is the ape of God, that he creates spurious imitations of creation, of God's authentic creation, and then interpolates them for authentic creation. Does this odd theory help explain my experiences? Are we to believe that we are occluded, that we are deceived, that this is not 1978, but A.D. 50, and Satan has spun a counterfeit reality to wither our faith in the return of Christ? I can just picture myself being examined by a psychiatrist. The psychiatrist says, what year is it? And I reply, A.D. 50. The psychiatrist blinks and then asks, and where are you? I reply, in Judea. Where the heck is that? The psychiatrist asks. It's part of the Roman Empire. I would have to answer. Do you know who the president is? The psychiatrist would ask, and I would answer, the procurator Felix? 
You're pretty sure about this, the psychiatrist would ask, meanwhile giving a covert signal to two very large psych techs. Yep, I'd reply, unless Felix has stepped down and had been replaced by the procurator Festus. You see, St. Paul was held by Felix for, who told you all this? The psychiatrist would break in irritably, and I would reply, the Holy Spirit. And after that, I'd be in a rubber room inside gazing out and knowing exactly how come I was there. Everything in that conversation would be true, in a sense, although not true in another. I know perfectly well that the date is 1978 and that Jimmy Carter is the president and that I live in Santa Ana, California, in the United States. I even know how to get from my apartment to Disneyland, a fact I can't seem to forget. And surely no Disneyland existed at the time of St. Paul. So, if I force myself to be very rational and reasonable and all those other good things, I must admit that the existence of Disneyland, which I know is real, proves that we are not living in Judea in AD 50. The idea of St. Paul whirling around in the giant teacups while composing 1 Corinthians as Paris TV films him with telephoto lens, that just can't be. St. Paul would never go near Disneyland. Only children, tourists, and visiting Soviet high officials ever go to Disneyland. Saints do not. But somehow that biblical material snared at my unconscious and crept into my novel. And equally true, for some reason in 1978, I relived a scene which I described back in 1970. What I am saying is this. This is the eternal evidence in at least one of my novels that another reality, an unchanging one, exactly as Pyramides and Plato suspected, underlies the visible, phenomenal world of change. And somehow, in some way, perhaps to our surprise, we can cut through it. Or rather, a mysterious spirit can put us in touch with it if it wishes us to see this permanent other landscape. Time passes. Thousands of years pass. But at the same instant that we see this contemporary world, the ancient world, the world of the Bible, is concealed beneath it. Still, there are still real, eternally so. Shall I go for broke and tell you the rest of this peculiar story? I'll do so. Having gone this far already, my novel, Follow, Flow My Tears, the policeman said, was released by Doubleday in February of 1974. The week after it was released, I had two impacted wisdom teeth removed under sodium pentothal. Later that day, I found myself in intense pain. My wife phoned the oral surgeon, and he phoned the pharmacy. Half hour later, there was a knock at the door, the delivery person from the pharmacy with the pain medication. Although I was bleeding and sick and weak, I felt the need to answer the knock at the door myself. When I opened the door, I found myself facing a young woman who wore a shining gold necklace in the center of which was gleaming goldfish. For some reason, I was hypnotized by the gleaming golden fish. I forgot my pain, forgot the medication, forgot why the girl was there. I just kept staring at the fish sign. What does that mean, I asked her. The girl touched the glimmering golden fish with her hand and said, There is a sign worn by the early Christians. She then gave me a package of medication. In that instance... As I stared at the gleaming fish sign and heard her words, I suddenly experienced what I later learned is called amnesias, a Greek word meaning literally loss of forgetfulness. I remembered who I was and where I was. In an instant, in the twinkling of an eye, it all came back to me. And not only could I remember it, but I could see it. The girl was a secret Christian, and so was I. We lived in fear of detection by the Romans. We had to communicate with cryptic messages. She had just told me all this, and it was true. 
For a short time, as hard as this is to believe or explain, I saw fading into the view of the black prison-like contours of hateful Rome, but much more important, I remember Jesus, who had just recently been with us and had gone temporarily away and would very soon return. My emotion was of joy. We were secretly preparing to welcome him back. It would not be long, and the Romans did not know. They thought he was dead, forever, going to return, and our delight and anticipation was boundless. Isn't it odd that this strange effect, this recovery of lost memory, occurred only a week after my flow, my tears was released? And it is flow, my tears, which contains the replication of people and events from the book of Acts, which is set as the precise moment in time, just after Jesus' death and resurrection, that I, that I remembered, by the means of golden fish sign, as having some taken place. If you were me, and this had happened to you, I'm sure you wouldn't be able to leave it alone. You would seek a theory that would account for it. For four years now, I've been trying one theory after another, circular time, frozen time, timeless time, what is called sacred, as contrasted to mundane time. I can't count the theories. I've tried. One constant has prevailed, though, throughout all theories. There must indeed be a mysterious Holy Spirit which has an exact and immediate relation to Christ, which can indwell in the human minds, guide and form them, and even impress itself through those humans, even without their awareness. In the writing of Flow My Tears back in the 70s, there was one unusual event in which I realized at the time was not ordinary, was not a part of the regular writing process I had dreamed. I had another dream one night, an especially vivid dream, and when I awoke, I found myself under the compulsion, an absolute necessity of getting the dream into the next text for the novel, precisely as I had dreamt it. In getting the dream exactly right, I had to do 11 drafts of the final part of the manuscript until I was satisfied. Wow. I know, man. He's going off. He is. Bring us in. Bring us in. I will now quote from the novel as it appeared in the final published form. See if this dream reminds you of anything. The countryside, brown and dry in summer, where he had lived as a child. He rode a horse, and approaching him on his left, a squad of horses nearing slowly. On the horses rode men in shining robes, each a different contour. Each wore a pointed helmet that sparkled in the sunlight. The slow Solomon knights passed him, and as they traveled by, he made out the face of one, an ancient marble face, a terribly old man with rippling cascades of white beard. What a strong nose he had, what noble features, so tired, so serious, so far beyond ordinary men. Evidently he was a king. Felix Buckman let them pass. He did not speak to them as they said nothing to him. Together they all moved towards the house from which he had come. A man had sealed himself up inside this house. A man alone. Jason Taverner, in the silence and darkness, without windows, by himself now, on into eternity. Sitting merely existing inert, Felix Buckman continued on, out into the open countryside. And then he heard from behind him one dreadful single shriek. They had killed Taverner. And seeing them enter, sensing them in the shadows around him, knowing what they intended to do with him, 
Taverner had shrieked. Within himself, Felix Buckman felt an absolute and utter desolate grief. But in the dream, he did not go back, nor look back. There was nothing that he could be that could be done now. No one could have stopped this posse of very, very colored men in robes. They could not have been said no to. Anyhow, it was over. Taverner was dead. This passage probably does not suggest any particular thing to you except a law posse exacting judgment on someone either guilty or considered guilty. It is not clear whether Taverner has in fact committed some crime or is merely believed to have committed some crime. I had the impression that he was guilty, but that it was a tragedy that he had to be killed. A terribly sad tragedy. In the novel, this dream causes Felix Buckman to cry, and therefore he seeks out the black man at the all-night gas station. Months after the novel was published, I found the section in the Bible to which this dream refers. It is Daniel 7.9. Thrones were set in place, and one ancient in years took his seat. His robe was white as snow, and hair of his head was like the cleanest wool. Flames of fire were his throne, and its wheels blazing fire. A flowing river of fire streamed out before him. Thousands upon thousands served him, and myriads upon myriads attended his presence. The court sat, and the book was opened. The white-haired old man appears again in Revelations one thirteen. I saw one like a son of man, robed down to his feet, with a golden girdle around his breast. The hair of his head was white as snow-white wool, and his eyes flamed like fire. His feet gleamed like burnished brass refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. And then in 117, When I saw him, I fell to his feet as though I was dead. But he laid his right hand upon me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and I am the last, and I am the living one, for I was dead, and now I am alive forevermore, and I hold the keys of death and death's domain. Write down, therefore, what you have seen, what is now, and what will be hereafter. And like John of Patmos, I faithfully wrote down what I saw and put it in my novel, and it was true, although the time I did not know who was meant by this description. He made out the face of the one, an ancient marble face, a terribly old man with rippling cascades of white beard. What a strong nose he had, what noble features, so tired, so serious, so far beyond ordinary men. Evidently he was king. Indeed he was king. He is Christ himself, returned to pass judgment, and this is what he does in my novel. He passes judgment on the man sealed up in the darkness. The man sealed up in the darkness must be the prince of evil, the force of darkness. Call it whatever you wish. Its time had come. It was judged and condemned. Felix Buckman could weep at the sadness of it, but he knew the verdict could not be disputed. And so he rode on, without turning, without looking back, hearing only the shriek of fear and defeat, the cry of evil destroyed. Whew. Volts, that was crazy. 
that is i mean it just it gets so intense you're just like man i can't believe this goes on in the mind of this man i know man i'm gonna keep kicking it right here but uh that part where he's explaining the return of christ himself who's passing judgment and then how he articulates it in his novel is that is so intense this guy is this guy is for real no doubt so my novel contained material from other parts of the bible as well as the sections from acts deciphered my novel tells quite a different story from the surface story which we need to we need not to go into here the real story is simply this the return of christ now king rather than suffering surgeon servant judge rather than victim of unfair judgment everything is reversed the core message of my novel without knowing it was a warning to the powerful you will shortly be judged and condemned who specifically did it refer to well i can't really say or rather would prefer not to say i have no certain knowledge only an intuition and that is not enough to go on so i will keep my thoughts to myself but you might ask yourselves what political events took place in this country between february of 1974 and august of 1974 ask yourself who was judged who was condemned and fell like a flaming star into ruin and disgrace, the most powerful man in the world, and I feel sorry for him, now as I did when I dreamed that dream, that poor, poor man I once said to my wife with tears in my eyes, shut up in the darkness playing the piano in the night to himself alone and afraid, knowing what's to come. For God's sake, let's forgive him, finally. But what was done to him and all his men, all the president's men, as it's put, had to be done. But it is over, and he should be let out of, into the sunlight again. No creature, no person should be shut up in the darkness forever in fear. It's not humane. Just about the time the Supreme Court was ruling on the Nixon tapes had to be turned over to the special prosecutor, I was eating at a Chinese restaurant. In Yorba Linda, the town in California where Nixon went to school, where he grew up, worked at a grocery store, where there is a park named after him, and of course, the Nixon house. Simple, clappered, and all that. In my fortune cookie, I got the following fortune. Deeds done in secret have a way of becoming found out. I mailed the slip of paper to the White House mentioning that the Chinese restaurant was located a mile away from Nixon's original house. And I said, I think a mistake has been made. I, by accident, got Mr. Nixon's fortune. Does he have mine? The White House did not answer. What a savage. <laughs> I know, dude. Sends his fortune to the White House. <laughs> and they're like, sorry, uh, your guilty uh, president has got, <laughs> I got the wrong message. Classic. I love it. Well, as I said earlier, an author of work supposed fiction might write the truth and not know it. To quote Xenophanes, another pre-Socratic, even if a man should have a chance to speak the most complete truth, yet he himself does not know it, all things are wrapped in the appearance. And Heraclides added to this, the nature of things is in the habit of concealing them. W.S. Gilbert of Gilbert and Sullivan put it, things are seldom what they seem. Skim milk masquerades as cream. 
The point of all that is that we cannot trust our senses and probably not even our reasoning. As to our senses, I understand that people who have been blinded from birth are suddenly given sight are amazed to discover that objects appear to get smaller and smaller as they get farther away. Logically, there's no reason for this. We, of course, have become to accept this because we're used to it. We see objects getting smaller, but we know this is actually the... Re- that they actually remain the same size. So even the common everyday pragmatic person utilizes a certain amount of sophisticated discounting on what his eyes and ears tell him. Little of what Heraclides wrote has survived. And what do we have? And what do we have is obscure, but fragment 54 is lucid and and important. Latent structure is master of obvious structure. This means that Heraclides believed that the veil lay over the true landscape. He also may have suspected that time was somehow not what it seemed, because in Fragment 52, he said, Time is a child at play, playing draughts. A child is the kingdom. This is indeed cryptic. But he also said in Fragment 18, If one does not accept it, one will not find out the unexpected, and it is not to be tracked down, and no path leads us to it. Edward Hussey is the scholar that wrote the book The Procreation, the book, the pre-Socratic says, if Heraclides is to be so insistent on the lack of understanding shown by most men, it would seem only reasonable that he should offer further instructions for penetrating the truth. The talk of riddle guessing suggests that some kind of revelation beyond human control is necessary. The true wisdom has been seen and is closely associated with God, which suggests further that advancing wisdom of man becomes like or a part of God. This quote is not from a religious book or from a book of theology. It is the analysis of the earliest philosophers by lecturer in ancient philosophy at the University of Oxford. Hussey makes it clear that to these early philosophers, there was no distinction between philosophy and religion. The first great quantum leap in Greek Greek theology was by the Xenophanes of the Colophon, born in the mid-6th century, B.C. Xenophanes, without resorting to any authority except of its own mind. One God there is, in no way like mortal creatures, either in the bodily form or in the thought of his mind. The whole of him sees, the whole of him thinks, the whole of him bears. He stays away motionless in the same place. It is not fitting that he should move about. Now this is the way, not bad." This is a subtle and advanced concept of God, evidently without precedent among the Greek thinkers. The arguments of Paramedes seem to show that all reality must indeed be a mind. Hussey writes, or an object of thought in a mind. Regarding the Heraclides specifically, he says, in Heraclides, it is difficult to tell how far the design in God's mind are distinguished from the execution in the world, or indeed how far God's mind is distinguished from the world. The further leap of Exonagoras has always fascinated me. Exonagoras have been driven to the theory of microstructure, of the matter which made it, to some extent mysterious to human reason. Exonagoras believe that everything has de- determined by mind. There are no childish thinkers nor primitives. They debated serious issues and studied one another's views with deft inside. It was not until the time of Aristotle that their views got reduced to what we can neatly but wrongly classified as crude. The summation of pre-Socratic theology and philosophy can be stated as follows. The cosmos is not as it appears, and what, is probab- and what probably is at the deepest level is exactly that which the human being is at the deepest level. 
Call it the mind or the soul. It is something unitary, which lives, thinks, and only appears to be plural and material. Much of his views reaches us through the Logo doctrine regarding Christ. The Logos was both that which thought and the thing which is taught. Thinker and thought together. The universe, then, is the thinker and thought. And since we are part of it, we as humans, in the final analysis, thoughts of the thinkers of those thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> it's like dealing with like Alice in Wonderland, like oh Lewis Carroll. Oh, gosh. Thus, is God thinks about Rome circa AD 50, and then Rome circa AD 50 is. The universe is not a wind-up clock, and God the hand that winds it. The universe is not a battery-powered watch, and God the battery. Spinoza believed that the universe is the body of God's extensive in space. But long before Spinoza, 2,000 years before him, Xenophanes had said, effortlessly he wields all things by the thought of his mind. If any of you have read my novel, Ubik, you know that the mysterious entity or mind or the force called Ubik starts out as a series of cheap, vulgar commercials and winds up saying, I am Ubik. Before the universe was, I am. I made the suns. I made the worlds. I created the lives and the players, the places they inhabit. I move them here. I put them here. They go as I say. They do as I tell them. I am the word, and my name is never spoken. The name in which no one knows. I am called Ubik, but that is not my name. I am. I shall always be. It is obvious from this who and what Ubik is. It specifically says that it is the word, which is to say the logos. In German translation, there is one of the most wonderful lapses of correct understanding that I have ever come across. God help us if the man who translated my novel Ubik into German were to translate from the Cohen Greek into the German of the New Testament. He did all right until he got to the sentence, I am the word. That puzzled him. What can the author mean by that? He must have asked himself, obviously, never having come across the Logos doctrine. So he did as a good a job of translation as possible. In the German edition, the absolute entity, which made the sons made the worlds, and created the lives and the places they inhabited, says of itself, I am the brand name. Because <laughs> <laughs> of logos. Right. Oh, that's great. He had translated the gospel according to St. John. I suppose it would have come out as, when all things began, the brand name already was. The brand name dealt with God, and what God was, the brand name was. <laughs> that's funny. It would seem that not only you... <laughs> not only bring you greetings from Disneyland, but from the Mortimer nerd. Such is the fate of the author who hoped to include theological themes in his writing. The brand name, then, was with the God at the beginning, and through him all things came to be. No single thing was created without him. So it goes with noble ambitions. Let's hope God has a sense of humor. Or should I say, let's hope the brand name has a sense of humor. As I said to you earlier, my two preoccupations in my writing are what is reality and what is the authentic human. I'm sure you can see by now that I have not been able to answer the first question. I have an abiding intuition that somehow the world of the Bible is literally real, but veiled landscape, never changing, hidden from our sight, but available to us by revelation. That is all I can come up with. A mixture of mystical experiences, reasoning, and faith. I would like to say something about the traits of authentic human, though. In this quest, I have had more plausible answers. The authentic human being is one of those who is instinctively knows what he should not do, and in addition, he will balk at doing it. He will refuse to do it, even if this brings down dread consequences to him and to those whom he loves. 
This, to me, is ultimately the heroic trait of ordinary people. They say no to the tyrant, and they commonly take the consequences of this resistance. Their deed may be small and almost always unnoticed, unmarked by history. Their names are not remembered, nor did these authentic humans expect their names to be remembered. I see their their authenticity in an odd way, not in their willingness to perform great heroic deeds, but in their quiet refusals. In essence, they cannot be compelled to be what they what they are not. The power of spurious realities battering at us today. These deliberately manufactured fakes never penetrate to the heart of true human beings. I watch the children watching TV, and at first I'm afraid of what they are being taught, and then I realize they can't be corrupted or destroyed. They watch, they listen, they understand, and then, where and when it is necessary, they reject. There is something enormously powerful in a child's ability to withstand the fraudulent. A child has the clearest eye, the steadiest hand. The hucksters, the promoters, are appealing for the allegiance of these small people in vain. True, the cereal companies may be able to market huge quantities of junk breakfast. The hamburger and hot dog chains may sell endless numbers of unreal fast food items to the children, but the deep heart beats firmly. Unreached and unreasoned with, a child of today can detect a lie quicker than the the wisest elder of two decades ago. When I want to know what is true, I ask my children. They do not ask me. I turn to them. One day, while my son Christopher, who is four, was playing in front of me, and his mother, we two adults began discussing the figure of Jesus and the synoptic gospels. Christopher turned towards us for an instant and said, I am a fisherman. I fish for fish. He was playing with a metal lantern, which someone had given him, which I had never used, and suddenly I realized that the lantern was shaped like a fish. I wonder what thoughts were being placed in my little boy's soul at that moment, and not placed there by cereal merchants or by candy peddlers. I am a fisherman. I fish for fish. Christopher at four had found the sign I did not find until I was 45 years old. Time is speeding up. And what to, and to what end? Maybe we're told that 2,000 years ago, or maybe it wasn't really that long ago, or maybe it's a delusion that so much time has passed. Maybe it was a week ago, or even earlier today. Perhaps time is not only speeding up, perhaps, in addition, it is going to end. And if it does, the rides at Disneyland are never going to be the same again. Because when time ends, the birds and hippos and lions and deer at Disneyland will no longer be simulations. And for the first time, a real bird will sing. (laughs) Wow. That's the mind of Philip K. Dick right there. Honestly, I always say genius comes with the penalty. And and that guy, man. I mean, there's just, I mean, you can't really even delve into like too many of his different theories because they just take so many different directions and have so many different outcomes that you're just like, I'm kind of glad I'm not Philip K. Dick. I'm sure. Dude, his stories are so good. And, you know, in Total Recall, um, he goes down to like the Total Recall station and he has this... uh, not a dream but like i guess it's kind of like a dream and it goes along kind of like with it's recall it's like philip k dick's whole i don't want to say illness but like his whole perspective is like that there's a dream within the dream and that somehow everything he's seeing is fake or everything he's seeing is real but there's fake undertones in it it, it it toys with reality and fakeness and like a uh, imposters that whole thing about Rome. Well, when he was talking about um, 
Oh, I just lost my train of thought. Yeah, the whole thing about Rome circa AD 50 being 1978, but 1978 just being the facade of what he's seeing. But in reality, it's actually Rome of AD 50. That is unreal. That just goes, I mean, that that falls into is time real because that did happen. And in in some parallel universes, is it happening right now during our 1978 it's just an overlapped world we just can't see it and he was getting glimpses of it i mean it was like when he was talking about i remember what i was going to say he was talking about the schizophrenics are they crazy or are we they just have a different perception of what's going on in the world it's not to say what they don't that it's not real because they believe it and who's to say what is real if you can believe something you can see it you can hear it to you it's real but to us they're completely out of their minds I mean, obviously, Philip K. Dick was a genius who brought us the most fascinating stories. Uh, Minority Report, another one with the precogs, fascinating. And Man in the High Castle, fascinating. Yeah. Ubik, uh, this one that we just went over, how, uh, how to create a universe that doesn't fall apart in two days. I mean, I, I can see that, you know, he had a struggle there. He, he was definitely struggling. He was tormented. Tormented with the truth that he was never really seemed to get a grasp on, it seems like. It seemed like he was struggling with what reality is. Aren't uh, we all? Yeah, and, and and that's what you know the protagonist in Total Recall had was a struggle with what reality really was. And it it is uh it seems like it's kind of a big circle. Like you can just trap tra- Synchronicity. Get trapped in it and circle back around to the the first thoughts that he had. It, it's bizarre. The The story about um, him writing and then living the scene, that was really bizarre too. Yeah. I mean, a lot of us would probably just chalk it up as deja vu, but he had already written about it. So it's like, wow, I am these people and these people are the people in my stories. So and he, having a vision of the future and then living it. Yeah, but it was also kind of like a vision of the past because it was scripture from the Bible, but it was also incorporated into today's stories. You can kind of see how he (laughs) went kind of nuts. Yeah, I mean, that's the past, the present, and the future all existing at one time. Yeah, imagine if you were just having constant deja vu. You'd just be like, that's it. I got to get out of here. You'd be like, what is real? What is not? I hate it when I have occasional deja vu. yeah even for like that 10 seconds it's just like it's an irky feeling it really is i hate it well if your mind isn't completely blown yet on philip k dick and you still need more information on him go out and uh, go to youtube and watch some of his talks that he does i mean he he's a genius he's a madman he's a a mystic. He's a mystic. He's he's just great. We loved him. We've had this podcast in our circulation for a while, and it took, as you could see, it took a long time to put together. But uh, I hope I hope we did Philip K. Dick some justice tonight. I had fun. I, I hope that the audience enjoyed it. I hope so too. So uh, share this podcast with your friends and family. Share our Facebook page. Share our Instagram. Uh, share our uh, web page. Our web page subtlebeastpodcast.com. Uh, we got a lot of more great stuff coming down to Pike for y'all. So uh, I hope you're about as excited as we are because it's about to get rocking and rolling. But until that time, I'm Foltz. And I'm Steve. And we'll see you next time. Take care of one another. Bye-bye.